Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I, I realized that he had, he was just really shaking and tears were coming down his cheeks. I was not expecting that. I just thought he would tell me, get lost. I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't know what you're talking about. But he did. But I saw the relief on him. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's a tale that is made for the big screen. A Hollywood starlet threatens to expose an illicit love affair. A missing diary reveals a web of intrigue from a president to a mafia boss. And it is claimed that secret police files hold the truth to one of the greatest cover-ups in modern history. Now, a former Los Angeles policeman says he knows just what happened the night Marilyn Monroe died. It's a story that Mike Rothmiller has kept safe for years, afraid of the repercussions of his allegations that tie former US Attorney General Bobby Kennedy to murder. This week, I'm talking to Mike, who has co-authored a sensational new book, Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe, about his claims that the world's most famous blonde was poisoned to protect a dynasty. He tells me how he stumbled upon intelligence files relating to the case when he was working in organised crime back in the 1980s. He reveals how he pursued his own investigation into a cover-up and garnered a confession from a major Hollywood actor about the events of that night. And he says that as he pieced together evidence that directly linked Bobby Kennedy to Marilyn's death, he was ambushed in a mob-style assassination attempt which silenced him until now. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Mike, you're going to tell me one hell of a story today. Um, To start, we probably need to bring you back to the beginning of your career and for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly, um... In 1972, I joined the Los Angeles Police Department. I spent 10 years, just over 10 years there. 
Uh, I worked various assignments, patrol, patrol supervisor, uh, training officer. I worked 18 months undercover in vice enforcement, which was very interesting, especially in Hollywood. And uh, then I became a detective and I went into the intelligence unit. I was the youngest guy ever to go into that unit. And uh, surprisingly, over 100 guys applied for the position. And when I was promoted to detective, I immediately went into intelligence. And I spent five years there. And we worked deep undercover, uh, which means we had unmarked cars, license plates from various states, false IDs, false driver's licenses, and so forth. And uh, only other intelligence personnel from federal agencies, the FBI, or anybody knew who we actually were. And sometimes they didn't know until we told them. So you were kind of in your late 20s at that stage. I mean, it must have been very exciting um, out and about. Who were you watching? Were you watching, I mean... Going back then, you weren't obviously watching drug gangs or anything like that. Was it mafia or? Yeah, theoretically, it, it was called the Organized Crime Intelligence Unit. And it actually started in 1932 as the Gangster Squad. And there have been movies about that in the past. And they were said they were keeping the mafia out of Los Angeles. Well, what they were actually doing was keeping the East Coast mafia out of Los Angeles. L.A. had its own crime family. Uh, that was working in conjunction with them, but they didn't want Chicago, Detroit, Kansas City, New Yorkers coming in to take over the mob in Southern California. So that's where they started. But as time went by into the, uh, oh, probably to the late 40s, they started gathering more and more intelligence on politicians, judges, foreign leaders, didn't matter where they were, if they had some information, they would put it in file. Uh, entertainers, that was a big target, and uh, sports figures, um, Muhammad Ali was one boxer, I saw his intelligence file, but it was just becoming uh, like a magazine, a voyeur's magazine for the chief of police, because the information we gathered only went to the chief of police. It never left our office, because under state law, it's considered an act of investigation. And so they will never release it. They don't have to. Um, so that's what we were doing. We were doing a lot more work that didn't involve organized crime than did. So you were kind of watching maybe if somebody was, you know, you were collating uh, individuals. We'll take, for example, celebrities, see who they were meeting, where they were going, probably who they were having affairs with and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one thing, the chief of police when I was there, working intelligence was Daryl Gates, and there was a briefing once a week for him regarding intelligence that we had gathered. And uh, he loved photographs. And so when we're on a surveillance, we're photographing different people, doing different things. And if we came up with something where, say it was a, a man who was married having an affair, that's the information he wanted, or vice versa. Or there were plenty of Let's put it this there are plenty of male leading men in Hollywood at the time who were gay, but nobody knew it. And that's what he wanted. And so we were getting photos of them, uh, getting other information about them that the chief of police wanted um, to use at some time. And was there actually any policing interest in this sort of stuff or was this a sort of Hoover style uh, gathering of intel for power purposes. It was for power, and I'll give you an example. When I was there, there were 60 detectives and some support staff. 
and we worked in teams. And out of all of the years I was in intelligence, we never made one arrest. So that tells you uh, what the objective was. It was to gather information, and that was it. Uh, I knew of cases at the time, for instance, cocaine, if somebody had three or four kilos, that was a major, major find. We had mob guys we knew were flying in on private jets that were carrying 30 or 40 kilos, and we couldn't touch them, uh, even though we could have, but we were under strict orders. Uh, we could not arrest anybody, and we, in most cases, could not pass that information on to, say, a narcotics unit who could arrest them. It was a very strange situation, needless to say. And like when you went in, you noticed that there was all these files. Now, look, if that was me, I'd be like a child in a sweet shop going through them because I have an inherent nosiness about me. But um, you noticed these files and you presumably were dipping in and out of them to have a little nosy yourself. Is that how you you sort of stumbled upon what we will go on to talk about? But Yes, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Everybody has a curiosity and... When you see intelligence that nobody knows, reporters don't know, and quite frankly, the targets of the intelligence, they didn't know we had this stuff, right? And when you start going through the files and you see famous names of entertainers, automatically go, well, wait a minute, what does this intelligence dossier contain? And then start going through it. So that's what I did. And that's how I found the Kennedys and Marilyn Rose. I started going through the file cabinet uh, that led us to the reports, and they were probably 50,000 people we maintained dossiers on. It was always growing. And I saw John Kennedy's. So you like got to K and you saw John Kennedy and you just couldn't help yourself. I mean, that's... It, it, well, it was because I started at A and I saw so many other uh, celebrities and politicians, major politicians, as I went through the alphabet. And I said, this is interesting. I pulled John Kennedy's. His file was massive. And it was connected to his brother, Robert, to Edward, to his father, and to their extended family. And in that, it was linked to Marilyn Monroe and also to Peter Lawford. So I pulled their files and I started going through uh, what they had. And I was amazed because I realized that, uh, one, Peter Lawford's house and his telephone, as were Marilyn Monroe's, were bugged. They had wiretaps on it. And the wiretaps and the bugging was done by a former cop named Fred Otash. And Fred Otash was a private eye back then, and he did everything. And so as time went by, I got a hold of Fred, and I started talking to him. Because when you're working organized crime intelligence, you want to speak to people that are in the crime world who will talk to you because they know what's going on. And uh, so I started speaking with Fred, and... Uh, after we developed a relationship, I sat down with him one day and said, now tell me what you did regarding Peter Lawford's house, the bugging and the wiretapping, and Marilyn's house, and what did you do before the day she died, the night she died, and after that? He didn't want to tell me at first, but then I, I pressed him because I knew some activities that he was involved in that could really cause him grief. And so I mentioned that. I said, now let's make a deal. This information I have on you remains secret, and you tell me what happened. So he thought that was a wise move, and so he did. Mm -hmm. And he told me exactly what happened uh, as far as his involvement, what he did, 
Yes, he did have uh, recordings of Maryland's phone calls and of Peter Lawford's calls from their houses. And so on those phone calls were John Kennedy and also Robert Kennedy and other people. And uh, he just laid it out to me what he knew. I knew a lot of that was true because I'd already seen transcripts because he was supplying mm-hmm. the information to intelligence a long time ago. Now, to go back to um, 1962, which is the time that we're, we're talking about and the death of Marilyn Monroe, she'd had that very famous um, happy birthday, Mr. President moment on the stage, which is still replayed all the time. She was, some months later, uh, I mean, the story, the narrative was that she had sort of slipped into this you know, drug and drink induced depression and had killed herself in her in her home. And that was the story, presumably, that you would have known up until that up until the point when you started dipping into these files. Correct. I I knew what everybody else knew uh, in the general public, just what I heard. But when I got into their files um, and started reading them and speaking with Fred Otash and so forth and some other people, I, I said, wait a minute the files do not jive with what has been put out publicly and the official investigation. And so I just kept digging and digging. And eventually I was fortunate enough to interrogate Peter Lawford. And that was just a a very strange meeting. Uh, I had access to the Playboy Mansion working intelligence. So a lot of people wanted to go to the Playboy Mansion and see it. So I took my wife up there and some friends on a weekend and as we were going through, I saw a gentleman sitting in a very small room watching a TV. And I just stared at him for a moment. And I said, he looked very familiar to me, but I couldn't place him. When he looked at me, then I realized, oh, it's Peter Lawford. And he was drunk or on a combination of drunk and drugs, but he was completely out of it staring at this TV. So I had a very brief conversation with him. I put my business card that said, the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, Detective Rothmiller in a shirt pocket, and I had him there call me, and uh, I never thought he would, but he did. He called several days later. He had no idea who I was. He didn't remember even being at the Playboy Mansion, Uh, but curiously, he kept saying, who are you with? And I said, LAPD, organized crime, tells me. He says, are you the CIA? And I said, no, I'm not with the CIA, and he kept repeating that question, which perked my interest even more when I heard that. So we arranged the meeting a few days later in a public park where he felt safe. And uh, we sat down and started chatting on a park bench. And he gave me the same story that he had given in the past, which was scripted by LAPD back then, intelligence. And I just told him, uh, no, that's not what happened. Uh, I've read all the transcripts, I've read other interviews and so forth, intelligence-wise, and I said, Peter, did you know this? And he said, what? I said, I know you knew your phone was tapped, and that you knew your house, there was a microphone in there. And he he was paused, and the way I knew that, because Fred Otash was the guy who put him in, and he told me. And uh, he was shocked by that, and I said, so was Marilyn's house, and so was her phone, so I said... I've read the transcripts. I know what you guys are talking about. I know Robert was there that day because I've seen the surveillance photos of him, him and you together that day. And that, of course, was something that the Kennedys had 
denied that Robert Kennedy was anywhere near Marilyn Monroe that day. It was one of the, I suppose, the rumours that were were swashing round about all this. Um, Lawford, for anyone who doesn't know, was married into the Kennedy family and was basically Marilyn Monroe's friend, I suppose, her connection to the Kennedys. He was the person who introduced her to them. Um, he... Did he claim he wasn't over in her house, that he always said he wasn't over in her house that day as well? Well, from the reports that I saw in the past before I had this, uh, it was, no, he, he said, I didn't go over there, I was having dinner, and I called and so forth. Uh, that's how he started out with me, but I knew that was not true. And so when I pressed him on it, uh, and I took it from just a conversation like we're having to an interrogation, that's when things changed uh, because I, I was just pressing him hard, telling him facts that he probably forgot years ago, and I brought them back to him. And uh, he finally, it was very bizarre, but he just, he sat down on the bench again and he just put his hands up on his face and he just said, what do you want to know? And I just said, just tell me the truth. What happened? What did you do? What did you and Robert kind of do that afternoon and evening? And he just started laying it out what they did, uh, going to her house, talking to her, um, what they were doing at her house. And what were they What were they doing? I mean, she was threatening, I think, at the time, wasn't she, that she was going to expose the fact that she'd had an affair with, with John Kennedy. She was kind of, the wheels had come off a little bit with her. She was becoming uh, threatening, really, towards the Kennedy dynasty in that she wanted to, she wanted the world to know that, you know, she was in love with Bobby Kennedy, that he had, she was claiming he'd promised to leave his wife for her and she felt that they had sort of reneged on on her. Yeah, they, uh, from reading her diary, which LAPD Intelligence had, um, she basically thought she was being used like a prostitute. And uh, her emotions were real and her feelings were, I believe, real for Robert Kennedy. And when he, for a better term, just said, I'm done with you, don't bother me anymore. And Peter kind of told her the same thing. She did not take it well. Uh, she did not like being used, as she wrote. And uh, then she did threaten or mention some friends of hers that she was going to hold a press conference. And uh, that really sparked the movement within uh, Peter Lawford and the Kennedys. We got to do something because if she came out in that time frame, 61, 62, and said that, hey, I'm having an affair with the president. Mm -hmm. The climate here, the president would have had to resign, leave office, and their dynasty and politics would have been over. Would have been over. So go back to your park bench and, and Lawford, and what, what does he, his hands in his, over his face, and he goes, right, I'm going to tell you the truth. So what was his truth? What did he tell you? He admitted, he says, yeah, we went there to her house twice. Uh, there was an argument. We went back in the evening, and uh, he said it was just... Him, Robert, and Marilyn at the time. And uh, they got into an, an argument almost immediately, uh, Robert and Marilyn. And Robert kept asking, where is it? And asked for different things. Peter didn't remember exactly, he, you know, I want this photograph for that, but anything regarding her and the Kennedys they wanted. So they started searching the house. Uh, Peter... And Robert, and she followed him, and she started pushing them out of the way. And the heated argument ensued, and uh, Robert pushed him to the ground. 
And uh, Peter was, he said he was shocked by that. And uh, he had to pull him off because he thought a serious fight might ensue where he had really hurt her. And as time went by that evening, uh, they kept searching. There's arguments, screaming, and so forth. And Peter finally took Marilyn aside and said, here, let's go out. He sat her down on the sofa in the living room. And I uh, was trying to calm her and talk to her. And I said, well, where was Robert? He said, well, he went in the kitchen. And I said, okay. And, and so when he didn't come back quickly, Peter went into the kitchen. And I said, well, what, did, what was he doing? He said, well, he had a, a glass looked like water in it, and he had a spoon in it, stirring it. And I said, what, what color was the liquid? He said, it was clear. So then the question is, well, what's he stirring? You don't stir a glass of water, right? And he said, I don't know. I don't know what was in it. And uh, I said, well, what do you think was in it? And basically he thought it was a sedative or something to help calm her down because she had a history of drugs. And uh, he took it out. <clears throat> he went out with Bobby to Maryland, who was still on the sofa crying, and he they coaxed her into drinking it. She said it didn't taste well, had a bad flavor. And he said, no, 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 go ahead. It, it, it's good. It's good. Drink it. Uh, you'll feel better. And she did. Um, so while they're sitting there, uh, he said she just kind of relaxed a bit. And they went on searching the house more, looking for other stuff. And uh, so when he came back, he said maybe five, ten minutes later, he didn't really remember exact time, but he said Marilyn was on the stone sofa, her head tilted back, and she looked like she was sleeping. And they went over to her, and she kind of mumbled something, uh, didn't think much of it. He says they searched a little bit more, and then when they came back again, he looked at her, Peter looked at her, and he said she looked very waxen, and he didn't think she was breathing. And he said about that time, they hear a knock at the door. And Peter's worried. He said, I thought it was the police coming. Well, in a sense, he was correct, but he didn't realize how correct he was. He thought the neighbors had called the police because of all the screaming. And he said, Robert just said, we got to go. Took him by the arm, walked into the front door. Marilyn's still on the sofa. And they opened the front door, and he says, he sees two men standing there in plain clothes. And nobody said a word to each other. He said, they just stepped aside. Robert took him by the arm. We walked out, got in the car. And he said, I kept saying, who's that? Who's that? He said, we just got to leave. And they drove, as they were driving away, Peter said, look back, he saw the guys go in the house and close the door. Well, as time goes by, through my investigation and other people I spoke to, I found out who those guys were. One was the captain of LAPD intelligence, a guy named Hamilton, who was prior to the Kennedys being elected in the office, he was very close with them. And when they would fly to either Jack Kennedy or Robert, when they'd come into Los Angeles, he would arrange whatever they needed. And I mean anything. He had a hotel room at the Biltmore that was comp to the chief of police, but he used it, and they never were registered there under their own name during those times. Uh, Hamilton would also supply women to them and take them around, serve as a bodyguard. So... This just continued on reading reports, and I learned more of that. Yeah, it was Hamilton. And interesting, it was probably Hamilton who found her diary because there was a diary, a copy of her diary in LAPD intelligence in the files that I came across. And I was surprised by that because at that stage, I had always heard that she had a diary, it vanished, and nobody had ever seen it again. 
Well, once I saw a copy of it in LAPD Intelligence, I started to say, no, somebody has a copy of it, but how did LAPD Intelligence get a copy of it? And the only, there's only two possibilities. One was, was the captain from OCID, and he made a copy and put it in there, or they got it from somebody else, a copy, who found the diary or stole the diary. That's unlikely because that would have come out years ago, and that's why I believe it was Hamilton uh, put it in file. And Mike, this is 1982, am I right? While you are investigating this, you're not actually charged to investigate it. You are doing this of your own bat because you've discovered what you've discovered in the files and you've kind of taken it on to investigate it yourself. But nobody has actually said to you, go back and look at that Marilyn Monroe file and see if there has been a crime committed. So, I mean, you must have been chilled by what you were hearing and also slightly overwhelmed. Like, you were kind of looking into the files and you couldn't make a photocopy. So when you'd go home at night, I presume you'd scribble down the notes from what you remembered reading. So you had your own investigation going, but it was on the side and it wasn't official. And here you were finding out, finding a serious witness and somebody who was opening up to you. Like, is Hamilton still alive at that point? He has died. Yeah, and what's interesting about uh, Hamilton is that a short time after this, Robert Kennedy got him the job as chief of security for the National Football League. And Hamilton also came into a large sum of money. Uh, another guy who was there, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm 90% positive who it was, but he also re- quickly retired, bought a farm, a huge farm. Uh, so they came into some money. But regarding the notes that I took, I took them at the time I was reading it. I pulled the file out and I was put it on top of the file cabinet. And I started going through the uh, the diary and I grabbed some piece, scraps pieces of the paper and I started taking down verbatim what was in the diary. And uh, I also did that with uh, Peter Lawford right after we terminated the interview. I went back to the car and just started writing down verbatim what was said. Uh, and those notes I, I kept over the years. Yeah, and the point of that is they're very strong notes to have. They would be extremely strong notes to have them when they're taken in, in those in both those scenarios. Did you think of going to somebody with these findings or did you go to somebody with these findings? Well, eventually I would have, but I, I needed more information because that I was involved in many other investigations at the time and uh, some joint operations. We had one joint operation I was involved in with the CIA and that was with the, the Contras way back then, uh, gun running. And uh, I was involved with the the commanding general of the Mexican Federales on setting up an intelligence net for the LA Olympics. So there's a lot of things going on. And when you get one piece of information, it, it you put it aside, okay, that's one piece of this investigation. And I thought, I've got unlimited time to do this. Everybody was dead except for... Uh, Peter Lawford, really, and one other guy, and the informant had Fred Otash, and so I said, I've got time to go back to them, but it, it didn't work out that way. A few few months later, I ambushed at my house, and somebody tries to, to assassinate me, and uh, with the injuries, I never went back to the police department, so. Yeah, just go back there, rewind it there a second now when we get to that little bit, because that happened a bit too quick for me. Somebody came to your house and tried to assassinate you. Right. Right. It, what happened was that night, uh, I had to go 
to a meeting with some inform with an informant in the Mojave Desert, hundred miles away, uh, and he was telling me about cops out there that were dealing drugs. And I basically told him, said, "Well, that's nothing new. I'll take that information, <clears throat> give it to the DEA or somebody else." And so when I came home, it was about midnight. Uh, lived in a quiet suburban area, and as I was pulling in my house, I remembered I had a message for another friend who was also a cop. He lived about two blocks away. So I just drove over there. As I, I put it in his mailbox and I got back in the car, I noticed there was a motorcycle down the street, just idling. And as I pulled away, the motorcycle starts following me. And uh, in that area, any, seeing any car at night was unusual, but especially a motorcycle. So I started watching in my rearview mirror and all of a sudden it comes ripping up, roaring up next to me. And I just see the silhouette of a hand coming out with a gun. And I just jerked the car to the right. And I saw a muzzle flash. And I heard a rapid pop, pop, pop like that. And I didn't realize, well, I knew it was a gunshot. But I didn't realize if anything was hit. And I went down a dirt embankment. And while the car was still moving, uh, because I was in the military too prior to that, I said, I got to get out of the car. When somebody's shooting at you, it's an easy target. So it was a field cover of brush. When I jumped out, I, I don't know how I hit, but I hit wrong and I damaged my spinal cord. And I just, my legs were numb. I couldn't move them at the time. And I had a, a gun with me um, on my ankle. And I hear somebody running through the brush. And I thought, oh man, this is the guy coming down to finish me off. And I couldn't reach my gun because I couldn't move my legs. Fortunately, it was a fireman who lived nearby and he heard the crash and the shooting and he came out. But uh, it was a very, very strange and frightening situation. And uh, I learned later that I was told by some intelligence people and uh, some others that I was, I was marked for assassination because I knew too much about various things. And also they, they plan to assassinate my wife to send a message uh, to anybody that start getting into either that realm or this other one of the uh, Contras. And so it was very strange at the time, you know. I, I couldn't trust anybody. I was in the hospital in the ICU unit. <clears throat> then they put me in a room uh, under assumed name. And the following morning, uh, two guys walk in the room. I don't know who they are. And they close the door, and the guy comes up. And I, I'm saying, who are you? Because they're not medical personnel. And said, that's not important. He says, we're here to tell you what happened to you. And he says, um, the guy who meant to kill you, he screwed up. Because even though he emptied the whole magazine at me, he didn't hit me. They went all around me. And he said, that guy's already back in Central America. And he says, and your wife was marked to be killed too. And they did try that uh, about, a, oh, maybe four or five days later when she happened to go back to her office, four guys pulled up in the middle of summer wearing long running coats, holding the hands up, went up to her door. It was a glass door and it was locked because she worked, she was a bank manager and they thought it was a robbery, but it wasn't a robbery because she had a private office and that's where they're going. And later on, uh, the FBI came to me and said, that was the attempt on her. They were going to try to get her that day. And you're saying they. They. Well, when there's more than one person. But, I mean, is this because you're digging around the Kennedy file, Marilyn Monroe? 
I mean, as far as you know? That, that I can't be 100%, but I can't rule it out. Uh, because it was just strange timing that right after, I, like I said, digging around and I'm asking questions of other people, I've already interrogated it. Fred Otash, he told me, I've spoken to some other people, and then uh, when Peter Lawford breaks down, tells me what happens, then some red flags start going up. But as you point out, you're doing all sorts of other things. So as a police officer, you can't just be tunnel visioned on that. But the timing of it certainly is. I mean, so many years on, what's your gut telling you now? I still can't rule it out 100 uh, percent because I, I just don't know. But I've found uh, a lot of information on um, with the help of some investigative reporters on the shooting and uh Matter of fact, I'm doing another book, and that's going to be in there. But uh, I can't rule that out. I just can't. Uh, mm-hmm. And how does that mess with your head? I mean, you know, the kind of world that you're operating in, that intelligence and secretive and, you know, must make it very difficult to be normal or, you know, to, to think normally. And then to have it hanging over you all these years that... Was it your own state who tried to silence you like that? I mean, that must be very difficult to cope with psychologically. It's, it's yeah, it's tough. And um, like I said, there have been, over the years, uh, in one, within the last few years, investigative reporters really dug in for about a year. They've come to me and they, they said, <clears throat> we couldn't pin it down, but, but we believe, and they gave me a couple of names, these guys in LAPD intelligence were involved in it because there are only a few people knew I was going out to the desert that night and when I'd be getting back. And uh, so I didn't want to hear that. Yeah, I really didn't. Uh, but it was always in the back of my mind too, that that was a possibility. And when they came to me and said, we've been looking and we've talked to, you know, dozens of people from then and, we think that these guys in LAPD intelligence set you up. And uh, when I quizzed them, not those guys, but these reporters about it, what they told me made sense. It really did. Uh, because there's too much, in some areas, there's too much money involved and too many powerful people wanted their secrets kept. Mm-hmm. And do you think that did, when, when you were dipping around in the files and taking notes and all, did you think that nobody knew you were doing that or did you, were you quite open about it or were you very secretive about it yourself when you were doing that? Um, I never mentioned to anybody what I was doing, you know, dipping around, but <clears throat> where the files were kept, it was, oh, a room maybe 20 by 30. And there's the lieutenant in there who ran the office and two other detectives. And the only Xerox machine we had was right there with them. And so, yeah, the main filing cabinets all within that room. So if you're digging anything out, you got generally a set of three eyes that can see you. And uh, so when I'm digging around, going through the files, pulling them off the racks of files that they had and digging through, they generally, they wouldn't ask what you're doing because they, you know, just most cases they didn't care. They said, you're working on something, right? And uh, so it would made it impossible to break down because it was her... Her diary was 
all paper, obviously, Xerox copies, and with the two holes punched in the top with wire brads holding it together. So I would have to disassemble this thing in front of them and then put one page down time, make a copy, because it wasn't one of those automatic feeding. It's one page at a time, and it would have taken probably a good hour. And with that, somebody would have come and say, what, what are you doing? You know, and once they saw what I was doing, then the word starts getting around. Um, so it was a matter of taking notes. I was writing the notes at the time. And Lawford, was he near to the end of his life that time that he spoke to you? Or did he just believe that you knew and he, this was his moment of confession? Or did he want you to go anywhere with it? Did he say to you, you know, I'll go to court, I'll go to a court of law if I have to, or was he just kind of getting it off his chest? What was going on with him? Um, well, he lived probably two years, maybe three years after we spoke. So he was already, uh, he was pretty haggard and in bad shape physically. Uh, but the day I spoke with him and interrogated him, I I didn't detect any alcohol or any drugs on him. Uh, he was being straightforward. He didn't say, what are you going to do with this? He didn't say, I'll go to court or anything, uh, because I told him up front that I work intelligence, and I told him that he wasn't in trouble, we're not coming after him, just wanted to know what happened. And that if he told me what happened, that would be the end of it right there, which probably would have, because at that stage, um, the main players were all dead, except for him going there. And I don't think he actually knew what was going to happen. He just thought he was going to try to calm Marilyn down with Robert. I, I don't think he was involved in any conspiracy to try to kill her. He was just trying to be a middleman to a friend, to two friends, and keep everything calm. Um, but at the end, uh, I, I realized that he had, he was just really shaking and tears were coming down his cheeks. And I was exhausted because I was not expecting this. And I had a million other questions. I think, geez, why didn't I think of this and that one afterwards? Uh, because I just thought he would tell me, get lost. I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't know what you're talking about. But he didn't. Um, so I was, I was probably just as shocked as he was. But I saw the relief on him. And like, they did treat her awful. I mean, you know, what, what you discovered in the diary as well about the party some nights previous in, in Frank Sinatra's house, how she had been drugged and she'd been photographed and she had been raped essentially by a mafia boss. And I mean, it was a strange time, wasn't it, where you had celebrity and organised crime colliding and living together and socialising together and all that. It was it was so such different times. And of course, to point out, you know, 20 years on when you're going through these diaries, we are 30 years at least from an iPhone phone. You know, you don't have a, a thing in your pocket that you can just click and take photographs of. Um, you're in hospital and you're being told that this is the scenario and this is the way you'll accept what's happened to you. Were you badly injured and how, how did you recover and what happened to you afterwards? Did you go back to your role in, in intelligence or were you shifted elsewhere? No, what, what happened is that it had damage to the spinal column and it, it's still residual today, uh, what happened, and weakness in the legs and so forth. But uh, because of the injury and the recouping, I, I never went back. And uh, when I started seeing some of the 
bizarre things that were happening afterwards to me and my family and so forth. Um, so I said, this is something very strange is going on here. And uh, finally, my wife and I just talked about it and said, okay, this is it. I'm done with this police department. And I just, so, you know, I just quit. But then they came back and said, no, we don't want you to quit. Uh, well, what happened? I filed a lawsuit against them to get them off my back. And my attorney came here and said, no, they don't want you to quit. They want to send you to juvenile narcotics division. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not going there because by that time, um, there were very few people within that department I, I could trust. I knew within the intelligence group, I couldn't because I, I caught them too many lies. Chief of police, I couldn't trust because I dealt with him personally in the past. And I knew as other guys within OCIDs, the chief of police and Daryl Gates, he was an acting CIA agent, not an officer, but an agent. There's a difference in them. And an agent is somebody who has a, a job in the civilian world, but does work for them. That's what he, he was doing for years. And that's why I was involved in some operations with the CIA going to Mexico and other places is because of him. Um, so it was a situation, do I trust these people? And it was too easy, I saw in the past, where there were, oh, let's say, quote, some accidental shootings of people uh, by cops. And you have everybody wearing a gun, and the chief of police doesn't want you there and doesn't want you talking. Uh, is it a safe environment to be in? And no, it's not. Um, so we just decided it's time to go. You very sensibly decided that you'd, there was no way you were going to put yourself in a position where you, you could be targeted a second time. And, you know, you... So what did you do with your with yourself after that? After that, well, uh, I'll give you a short summary of it. <laughs> I, I went to work for a guy who was a documentary television producer because I knew him when I was a, still a cop. So... I started going on shoots, started writing for him. Then I became a TV reporter. And after that, uh, I was offered a job, and I did. I went to ESPN as an exec producer and hosting my own series that I hosted. And then also for PBS, I did some. And uh, finally, I was just tired of the travel involved, and I decided to retire early. And uh, what happened is Sony Electronics came to me, and they asked me if I would take over three divisions for them. And so I did. I be, became uh, the director of government, media, and public relations for the Western Hemisphere for Sony Electronics. And uh, that was interesting because I had to go out and uh, brief, so, not celebrities, but uh, politicians. I had meetings with uh, like Bill Clinton when he was president, briefed him. I had meetings with foreign dignitaries, congressmen, senators, uh, governors, and you name it. Uh, I had to brief them on issues. So it was it was pretty interesting. I'll tell you one thing, it's very funny, if you want to hear this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when when I was working organized crime, there were some politicians who were just starting out and some Congress members, and they were deeply in the pocket of the mob, and I knew which mobs was necessary. Well, when I became head of government affairs relations, I met with some of them. And here we are, thirty some odd years later, and I said, and this, I remember this one senator, and I said, oh, by the way, are you still friends with Tony so-and-so? And he looked at me and says, what, Tony who? And I said, oh, you know, Chicago, blah, 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 you met with him. And the, his face just turned white. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, oh, no, you do. Come on. Because <laughs> this is what you guys were doing. And it was, it was interesting seeing their face 
when they thought yeah. there was a, this huge secret they've always kept, but somebody else knew. <laughs> and that's that power of information, isn't it? Having that, having that, those scraps of, of whatever you'd call them on people, um, it puts you in a, in a very powerful position. And that's exactly what they were doing with storing those intelligence files. Did you gravitate towards media? Did you feel there was maybe an element of security and safety with that, that they, you know, you, you'd have, um, you know, you'd have a place to, like Marilyn maybe threatened many years previous, but that if anybody came near you or tried to attack you again, that you could speak out? Uh, that was certainly a possibility, you know, it was in the back of my mind. And uh, basically when I, when I wrote my first book uh, in 93 about LAP intelligence, I wasn't going to write that book, but guys from LAPD intelligence came to me and said, can you please expose what's going on? Because they were deathly afraid of the chief of police because they were breaking all sorts of federal laws, wiretapping, things like this. And uh, they said, we don't want to do that, but we're being ordered to. And they knew, which I knew too, if they were caught, the chief of police would have thrown them under the bus instantly. And said so they got to go to prison, but it was he who was orchestrating it. Um, so that was some of my motivation is to help them out, but also to make the public aware of what LAPD intelligence was doing at the time. And uh, fortunately, it worked out well because they had to change what they were doing. I actually changed that department. And the Marilyn information and, and uh, Bobby Kennedy and all, why did you hold it so long or were you waiting for, did you still constantly feel under threat about that? There was some threat definitely there uh, in the early years and it was always in the back of my mind and uh, like most investigators or reports, you want to know all the facts, you want to know all the details. So through time I kept looking and kept digging and uh, finally um, I reached the point that one, I was out of the corporate world. And uh, in the corporate world, they don't want their senior executives being drawn before the media on something like that, you know. And uh, that was before the cancel culture, but it'd really be horrible. And so finally, after I retired and I had written over 20 some odd books, um, I kept saying, well, you know, maybe it's time. And it took me still several years to decide it was time to bring the truth out and to correct history. And uh, so that's what finally decided to do. And do you feel a kind of a sense of warmth and connection to Marilyn Monroe that you have brought out what, what your book says is the truth about her end rather than the, the cover-up that um, has allegedly gone on all these years? She was treated bad. Horribly. Horribly. Um, not only by a lot of different men in power, but uh, also by her physicians who were treating her for various ailments. Um, and also probably the, the media in a lot of respects, because there were a lot of questions when I went, was looking into this uh, through intelligence and uh, doing the book. <clears throat> there are a lot of questions then that were floating around that certain people were saying, well, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Let's investigate. And they just, no, we're not, not going to investigate. It's done. It's over. And that I knew knew how that occurred because often in the book, you've seen, 
I know how the cover-up happened and who was involved, and it's it wasn't that difficult to do. Um, so, you know, personally, I feel maybe a closeness to her uh, that I've set the record straight, and if her spirit's out there and she, and she knows what's going on, maybe she's finally saying thank you. And finally, I'd ask you, Mike, like it's a whole different world there now. And in, in the world of celebrity, we've had the Me Too movement, which has shown, I suppose, that that kind of behaviour went on up until recently. But now, um, you know, you think nobody could get away with any of this kind of thing and, you know, that it's a, it's a much a much better place to be. But you'd know better. Is it or is it still somewhere... Is it still a world of secrets? Oh, absolutely. It's a world of secrets. <laughs> I, I can guarantee that um, across the board. And even from when I worked intelligence, I know, and it will be coming out in the future, I'm bringing it out, but uh, go back to the 40s in L.A., the Black Dahlia killer. I know who did that because L.A.P. just did an investigation on it. So that would be in my next book. There's some very serious issues with the Robert Kennedy assassination and uh, some other things like that. So that will be coming out. But people I know today who are still kind of doing that work, uh, they'll tell me now, so what, this is what we're involved in, what we're gathering intelligence on. And so it really hasn't changed. It's just that they're covering their tracks a little bit better. That's what it comes down to. Um, where, you look back in the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s with LAP and Tell, they were right up front, you know, taking people out, beating them and everything. Um, and there was never an issue because nobody would challenge the LAPD. Today it's different. They have to be very selective what they do. They have to be, oh, extremely covert in when they're doing it. But is it still going on? Yes, because people want intelligence uh, for a number of reasons. And as you know, people love gossip. And if you can get the inside scoop on something, everybody wants to know. Mike, can um, can you promise me something? Will you talk to me about you, you? You've promised now, so that's it. But you'll talk to me about the Black Dahlia when you're ready. You got it. I am fascinated with that. You got Absolutely. it. Absolutely. An extraordinary story. Listen to the podcast on it. And yeah, and all the rest that you have locked away there, ready to, to give us drip bit by bit. Mike Rothmiller, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.